Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, a professor of economics at the University of San Francisco. My guest today is Seth Stevens-Davidowitz. Seth was my very first guest on this show, and I'm very happy to have him back as my first repeat guest to talk about his new book. Seth is a data scientist, author, keynote speaker, and recovering economist with a flair for catchy book titles. His book, Everybody Lies, was a New York Times bestseller that showed how social scientists are able to use new data about our online behavior to gain new insights about who we really are and what we really think. His latest book, Don't Trust Your Gut, is about how we can use data not just to understand other people, but also how to understand how to get what we want in life, whether it's health, wealth, attractiveness, or inner peace. I really like Seth's books because they're a great, engaging read. You don't get to be a New York Times bestseller without that. Uh, But they also do a really good job of drawing you into the economist's way of thinking and sharing the results of the latest social science research. Um, I bought a copy of his latest book for all our incoming USF economics grad students uh, for exactly that reason, to give them as summer reading, as summer reading, uh, just to get them started thinking, you know, in this economics way and get them excited about how data can be used to understand a lot of very practical problems that aren't usually what people think about as the domain of economics. So let's get started. Seth, welcome back. Peter, thanks so much for having me, though I can't take credit for coming up with catchy titles since I didn't come up with either of my titles. <laughs> uh, the editor came up yeah, the editor came up with both of them. But usually for- editors are known for wrecking wrecking books and articles with with their titles. So it's nice that they they did a good job on these. Maybe I can take credit for not rejecting the good, catchy titles they come up with. That's good enough. Um, so tell me, why did you decide to get into the self-help business? <laughs> there are many reasons. Every time I, uh, my first book is Everybody Lies. And I think one topic people lie about, authors lie about uh, what, what motivated them to write a book. Uh, and the proof that I lie about this is every time I describe it, there's a different reason. Uh, but I think one of the major reasons is that I, I'm a kind of an obsessive reader of self-help books. It's a little embarrassing to say because, you know, as in, as intellectuals, we're not supposed to, uh, love self-help. It's considered kind of lowbrow, uh, but my bookshelf and particularly my bookshelf may have intellectual stuff, my Kindle, what I really read, it's, you know, 48 laws of power seven or eight habits of highly effective people, four hour work week. I just devour these books, but I'm always kind of frustrated because I feel like they're not really based on very much. Uh, the, they're catchy. They may be fun to read. They have a couple provocative points, but they don't have the rigor 
that I like in a book and they don't have the charts and the tables and the graphs that, uh, that I find so convincing. So I kind of wanted to, I kind of thought, you know, well, well, what if I just went, tried to offer self-help, but really made it much more the type of evidence based on the type of evidence that I guess we as economists or me as a recovering economist, you as still an economist, uh, type, you know, the type of evidence that we type to, we tend to consider convincing. And I don't think there's anything wrong with self-help. Like, why shouldn't it be what uh, a, a proud uh, genre? Uh, what, 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 what's uh, to be embarrassed about about wanting to know what makes a successful mate, uh, a successful marriage, or uh, what makes you happy, or how you can be more successful? It seems like that should be a proud uh, genre of, of. Yeah, I mean, it's a. Uh... You know, it's it's a great tradition in America. I guess you know, going back to the 1800s, you know, we've always been a uh, a country about uh, you know making making yourself a better person or changing you know who you were, escaping escaping the the bad old world and your status as a as a peasant or a laborer or whatever, and going to the new country and uh, making something happen. Um, and and actually, not just not just, but it's not just an American impulse. I think uh, you know uh, to get into it, a little bit of amateur cultural studies, but you know, the part of the Confucian tradition in, in East Asia has always been about, you know, how do I, how do I improve myself? How do I, you know, learn better to fit the social roles that, that I aspire to and, uh, and become a more cultivated person, you know, may involve, you know, in some cases that, that may be more about like, you know, studying calligraphy or something like that, but, um, there's, uh, you know, it's, it's a great tradition. Yeah, I totally agree. Cause Sometimes people say, I remember reading like reading reviews of David Brooks or uh, Malcolm Gladwell, and some of the reviews would say that the, these books are self-help for people who wouldn't be caught dead reading self-help. And I'm just, I'd read, read that. I'm just like, why should someone not like not want to be caught dead reading self-help? What, it, when you think about what it is, how you can improve yourself. I just don't understand why an intellectual wouldn't be interested in that topic. So the first, the, so I, my, my book doesn't pretend it's not self-help. It's not for people who wouldn't be caught dead uh, reading self-help. My introduction is called self-help for data geeks. Uh, I, I just say this is purely self-help. Uh, and I don't see that why that's, uh, there's anything wrong, wrong with that or to be embarrassed about that. Yeah, I think for me, I don't know why other people are embarrassed, but I think for me, why I, I feel for, for exactly the same reasons as you, it, it leads me not to read as many self-help books. You know, there's always people who are like, oh, this book changed my life. This book was great. And like, this one is by something, something. And like, you know, they usually are like doctor, something, something, PhD, who, you know, purportedly teaches at Harvard, um, which usually involves like the adjunct in one semester 10 years ago. And now they're, they put Harvard under the name forever, but, um, it's, uh, it's got this like veneer of, of academia, but then the books themselves I mean, partly cause they have to appeal to a popular audience, but the books themselves are like lots of stories about like, you know, Nancy and Bob were having trouble and here's what happened. And then, and I'm like, okay, great. Now I get, you know, I've got the intuition from your story about Nancy and Bob. And, you know, why is it that you think this is the solution? And it's like, well, I've talked to a bunch of people and I really know. And plus I have a PhD or something like that. And it's like all, you know, at best arguments from authority, which, which I'm, I know I'm a, I'm a nerd. So I'm very receptive to, you know, I'm all about, you know, wanting people to listen to me because I have a PhD, but um, yeah. And if you got a whole book to work with, it seems like you could, you could do a little more to, to convince people that your advice makes sense or has some foundation. Yeah. It's interesting there. 
one of the pieces of advice for nonfiction authors is you need stories and don't include stories, don't include charts. And I have a few stories in this book for sure, but I, it wasn't, there's much less of, you know, Nancy and Bob. There, there are a few times I, I do that just because I, I do think there's some truth to that, that, you know, if you're writing a popular book, some readers do get bored if you're not, you know, using, if you're not talking about someone, a particular person or a particular place for a long time. So I do a little bit of that, but I just filled the book with charts. And so far the feedback if anything, the thing that's really resonating with people is the charts and people are, you know, it, it's, I'm kind of happy about that because, you know, you're talking about teaching your students about the economist or the data scientist mindset. And that kind of is the mindset to really look, look closely at the charts and the graphs and what does this mean? Uh, and that's what people are, you know, look, are really se- seemingly most engaged with, uh, with, with the book. So that kind of made me as a nerd, uh, as a data nerd, very happy. Yeah, maybe uh, I don't know. It's been a long time. I remember, like in the in the '80s, there was the movie Revenge of the Nerds, which I think does not hold up as a uh, any kind of moral guide um, when 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 look, when one goes back to look at it. Um, which, but uh, is you know, people have been talking ever since then about like, oh, now it's going to be Revenge of the Nerds, and it's like, I mean, it doesn't seem like it's quite happened yet, but um, still hoping. And uh, at least at least there's some of us out. Uh, reading and and writing books with with charts in them and uh and not scaring everyone away yeah i mean well i mean definitely nerds have taken control of the forbes 500 list and the most valuable companies in the world but they have not taken control of the self-help genre so uh, maybe i'm doing my small part to bring that transformation yeah. So actually, why don't we segue from there? Because, uh, you know, nerds, I mean, the whole the whole word, some people sort of like claim their nerd title. But uh, the one one reason why many a person might uh, avoid that is because nerd does not sound like someone you'd want to date. So <laughs> let's assume that most of our listeners are are nerds. And, uh, you know, I think either either want to date or uh, or maybe, you know, are, are past that stage. But like all of us, we're always curious about other people's love lives and want to give advice again, regardless of whether we have any basis for it. So, what is what is your uh, your love life uh, advice for for nerds or or anyone else based on the data? <laughs> well, one of the things I uh, one of the most interesting findings in the data science of dating, you know, date, you know, the our understanding of dating has been revolutionized by online dating sites because because to find out what people are attracted to, you used to have to ask people basically. And, you know, as I said, in everybody lies, that's just not a reliable path to understanding these sensitive topics. People would say, I want someone nice. I want someone with a good character. And then, you know, is that really true? And the data from online dating sites frequently tells us like very different that people are drawn to beautiful people and people of certain heights. But I think one of the things that was, is perhaps most interesting in the data is there seems to be more variation in what people find attractive than we sometimes think. And people tend to be attracted to extremes. So or a lot of people are attracted to extremes. And one of the implications of this is that frequently the best strategy is to be an extreme version of yourself and be basically polarizing. Because in dating, you don't want necessarily, you don't really care about the average rating for you. You care about how many people are really into you. And uh, there's work, Christian Rudder has done a lot of work in this area that uh, the bet you can maybe increase your messages by 70% by being an extreme version of yourself, being polarizing. Uh, so there, there are these types, they haven't actually tested nerds, 
but they're heterosexual women with shaved heads do really, really well in online dating. And it's kind of, well, why are they doing so well? We don't usually think of heterosexual women with shaved heads as sex symbols. Uh, and the key is that they might have a very low average rating. They may have many people who are not just aren't incredibly attracted to them, but are actively unattracted to them, turned off by them, uh, weirded out by them, creeped out by them. But that doesn't really matter because they're a small group of men who are really into heterosexual women with shaved heads. And that's what you want in dating. You want some people really, really into you. So my advice to nerds, which I took in my own life based on the data, is to nerd it up to a degree. Uh, don't, if you're really into, if you have some passionate interest in you know, science or math uh, and, and you, you maybe have a weird nerdy demeanor, I, you know, the world may be trying to tell you to stop doing that, to be more conventional, conventionally average attractive. And I think that's basically horrible advice. Uh, nerd it up is my advice to nerds. Uh, go all in. And a lot of people are going to be turned off by you. A lot of women or men or non-binary people, whoever you're trying to date, are going to be turned off by you. But a small percent will be really, really into you. And that's what you want in dating. You want you want to make sure you're attend to somebody. And the way for a nerd to do that is probably to be the 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 nerd. Uh, and it's it. I can keep talking, or if you want to ask questions, but it's true. No, I was just life. thinking about that. There's there's the, the you know uh, I don't know if it's a current cliche, but like the the certainly the cliche dating profile uh, for um, uh, a long time was something like you know I love to go out and party and dance, but I also love a quiet night at home with a fire, yeah. cooking with my honey. I'm athletic, but. Uh, I also, you know, totally love to relax and chill out and I'm not too intense. And like, and I actually remember when, you know, I, uh, uh, when I was, uh, dating, which is, uh, in the dark, the early dark ages from which probably your data came from. Um, but, uh, on, on match.com was, you know, noticed that there was like, could see myself being drawn towards like, uh, all these, like to present myself, like in the sort of middle outcomes of everything. And then, uh, I think I was, but then when I looked at people, actually, I did pursue a little bit of your strategy where like someone who actually like, uh, you know, wasn't just like, um, you know, was actually willing to say that they had a, a relatively extreme income or behavior or like something as opposed to like, uh, just like I'm agnostic and I have one drink a day and I make about, you know, uh, you know, I make just under six figures or like sort of, it's like, okay everyone is like that and that's completely bland. And, you know, I mean, I guess I still did like send lots of, you know, ignored messages to like the really hot women too, but, um, uh, and I, and I got one of them in the end, uh, but the whole process of, yeah, going for that, going for that lukewarm thing is a very, I can see it's like, you, you want to just be like, you don't want to be ruled out, but, but your suggestion is like, you really want to be ruled in. Yeah. And, and just, you know, kind of in my personal life, uh, my uh, girlfriend, I, I did pursue this nerded up strategy, uh, despite a lot of advice to the contrary, including from very good female friends of mine. They're like, Seth, you know, tone down the nerdiness. And I did not do that. I nerded up. And my girlfriend, we were recently talking, now been together two, almost two years. She uh, was talking to her friends in business school. They're going around, what's your type? What's your type? And, you know, everybody's saying, I want someone 6'2 and athletic, and, or I want someone rich, I want someone in finance. And her type was nerdy. 
uh, she's really interested in nerd, nerds. She really likes nerds and attracted to nerds. Uh, she's not even, I think, particularly nerdy herself. But uh, so, you know, the the, the strategy paid off. Our, our second date, uh, it was during the pandemic, so we were on Zoom, and I'm and I decided to play. I don't know if you know, remember the 36 questions to fall in love. Uh, it's the question. It's this. Uh, it went viral in the New York Times these questions that supposedly create intimacy. So I'm like, well, it's a zoom date. I got to do something okay. more exciting than just a standard conversation. So I, uh, suggested, so I started, we started playing 36 questions to fall in love and in the middle of the game, I interrupted to start describing, it was actually based on an academic paper so that <laughs> afternoon before playing the 36 questions to fall in love. I had read the academic paper and there were some nuances in the academic paper that weren't coming through in the game. And I started explaining that, uh, which is an extremely nerdy interruption to our 36 questions to fall in love, but uh, is, you know, but for someone attracted to nerds is a great, uh, you know, very attractive interruption. And then our first in-person date, uh, she brought, she had a bowl of cherries. It was on her rooftop, you know, it was during COVID outside and she had a bowl of cherries and at some point I decided I was going to start juggling the cherries, <laughs> uh, which I, is something I do, which I think most people would find very nerdy and probably is nerdy, but she really liked it. And I think it shows the wisdom. There, there's great wisdom in this strategy, I, I, I believe, uh, that you need to combine the being extreme and polarizing with being assertive and asking people out. Because if you're extreme and polarizing... You know, well, even if you're not extreme polarizing, no matter what, dating deals with dating has a huge amount of rejection, and uh, that there's also a math around that that I that's useful for nerds or anyone else. That uh, some of the studies say what happens when someone who's, let's say, a one, asks out a ten and or messages a ten in an online dating site, uh, what are the odds of hearing back? And before seeing the data, if I had to guess. I would have said it would have been one in a thousand, one in 10,000, you know, ones are never going to get a response from a 10. And a couple of papers seem to put the number about 14% for men and, and much higher for women, uh, which is much higher than I would have guessed. But even, it, it, and then if you do the math on that, if you have a 14% chance of getting a yes on an individual ask, if you ask 30 people out and each time have a 14% chance, you have more than a 98% chance of getting one yes. So, uh, you know, kind of uh, flooding the market a bit uh, with your uh, overtures is, I think, a data-driven approach to dating uh, that, uh, you know, that I think a lot of people don't do that. They pre-reject themselves. Uh, I was in that category in my 20s. I just never asked, asked people out, uh, you know, very rarely asked people out. I was you know, so convinced they'd say no. And that's, you know, a horrible uh, mistake the data tells us. Although couldn't there be some kind of like self-selection thing where like, you know, the one contacting the 10 is someone with, I don't know, they have a common interest or like they have that person, maybe, maybe the ones put in like, uh, like I would imagine like, you know, when the, when the nines contact anyone, if they even bother, because they're just busy with dealing with their flood of uh, incoming uh, contacts. But when they contact someone, they could just be like, hey. And then, like, the other person will, you know, jump all over that. Whereas, like, the one maybe is like, 
I don't know, sending a poem or something, you know, they're like, and, 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 or a customized reach out that like exactly shows the commonalities that the 10 might not have seen. Um, I don't know. I'm just guessing there. For sure. But the math doesn't really, the, the math doesn't require exactly 14%, even if it's half as large or even if right. it's much lower, the number is still going to get pretty high if you try it 10 times or 20 times or 30 times mm-hmm. uh, in, in uh, real life as well. So, you know, I went through college thinking I was a one. I don't think I, looking back on it, working with a therapist, he has told me that I had a somewhat distorted view of what I looked like. <laughs> You're a I solid went, four. Come on, Seth. What did you say? You're a solid four. Come on. Yeah, solid four. <laughs> uh, but I, I went through college thinking I was a one and undateable. And, uh, you know, and, and I think, uh, and I didn't have much of a romantic life in college. I did date, date some very uh, nice, attractive woman, but, uh, you know, who, who many times pushed the envelope themselves. Uh, and, you know, looking at the data, certainly for any of your listeners in college or grad school, when you're meeting all these great, smart, nice uh, people who share your interests and you're spending a lot of time with them, if you're attracted to them, you got to ask them out. Uh, you know, there, there's the, the chance is not uh, as low as you might suspect. And if you do it every time you're attracted to someone, you have a pretty good shot of getting a date get and getting a partner. Yeah, I think there's, yeah, I wonder if it's, well, anyway, this is getting beyond the scope of the book. <laughs> I wonder, I think there's an element, because um, I, I was in a similar, uh, a similar uh, state uh, as you for during college. Um, and I wonder if there's an element where um, I think we just, you know, it's not, well, as, as many with many other things in your book, people aren't that rational. So like we really overweight the rejection, you know, just like, oh my God, everyone will know and I'm going to feel terrible and, you know, it'd be so embarrassing that she rejected me and like, first of all, no one may know. And, you know, so it's going to mostly be in your mind anyway. Um, although I do know guys who got a reputation as being like the one who would just be like hit on every, everything that moved and like, um, that can, that can drag you down, but, um, at least in a college setting, although in, you know, an online setting, that's a nice, nice thing is he, that's not as, as apparent to people. Yeah. Online. Yeah. Online setting, bar setting, uh, many other settings. They, they, yeah, I think, uh, one argument I've heard is that we evolved. I, I don't know how true this is, but we evolved to uh, exaggerate the importance of embarrassing ourselves because uh, we lived in these tiny communities uh, where, yeah, yeah, everything is about your reputation. Everybody knows what what you're doing, and now in a more global world, you know, if you're in a random bar in New York city or San Francisco, or, uh, you know, and you do something that is embarrassing, nobody's going to know about it. It doesn't really matter. Of course, social media and cell phones, maybe reversing that again, uh, where, you know, some of our humiliations can be broadcast across the globe. So, uh, but yeah, I, I think there are some complications to the asking out thing via reputation. I, I would sort of agree, but definitely there's a category of human beings that it sounds like both you and I were in that is just way too unassertive and aggressive about our romantic interests uh, that I think, you know, and that nerds probably uh, fit in that category more than other people. Uh, And that's just, you got to get out, 
you got to, you know, get over that. Yeah. All right. So anyway, so, so we don't make this sound like the, uh, the, the, uh, nerds, uh, lamenting their, their past, uh, past failures in, in love. Um, let's, uh, let's talk about the other, so, you know, but, but I, but I did want to start with that anyway, cause it, you know, again, highlights, um, that economics these days, uh, is goes, goes way beyond, um, just kind of, uh, certainly goes, you know, it's way beyond macroeconomics or just, you know, things that are money related, but, but, you know, of course we all want love. We all want love, but we also, uh, all want to at least be well off. So, so tell, uh, tell me about the, the secrets of, uh, financial success that, uh, come from your book. Yeah. So there's one of the cool things about being an economist these days is we're living through a data revolution. And, uh, there's a paper, uh, it's actually by two friends of mine and two other researchers, capitalists in the 21st century it was written in 2019. It didn't get nearly enough attention as it should have. And they basically analyzed the entire universe of tax records. And they told us, uh, anonymized, de-identified, you know, that they weren't compromising anybody's uh, privacy. And uh, they actually uh, told us really for the first time, you know, broke down the data on people in the top 1% or the top 0.1%. Uh, certainly n- nothing this close to this comprehensive had been done. Uh, and the, the paper has all these points about, you know, capital versus human, human capital versus actual capital. But as a, a self-help author, uh, my, uh, read, my read of the paper was just, well, who's, who's, who's rich, who's secretly rich. And they had one sentence in this paper that also somehow the world didn't latch on to, uh, which I couldn't believe because I'm like, this sentence is amazing, where they say that the typical rich American is the owner of a regional business, such as an auto dealer or a beverage distributor. Uh, and that sentence just leapt out at me. Uh, I hadn't fully known a lot of other people who grew up in neighborhoods with more auto dealers knew, knew this more than I did, the extent to which auto dealers are crushing it, owners of auto dealers are crushing it in the United States. Uh, and I, I, I legitimately hadn't known what a beverage distributor was, uh, which now some people on Twitter are making fun of me that you're a PhD in economics and you don't know these basics, but whatever, I'm, I'm just admitting it. I did not know what a beverage distributor was before I read that sentence. So I started kind of looking at this paper. They have an appendix where they break down uh, basically all the businesses, how many owners they have in the top 1%, top 0.1%. turns out there are only a small number of businesses that bring uh, a decent percent of their owners into the top 0.1%. Uh, you know, let's say 10% of more of their owners. And uh, some of them were pretty obvious. Uh, even myself with my limited knowledge of basics of the economy could have guessed that real estate and investment, you know, investing were great paths to the top 0.1%. Uh, but some of them were, you know, a little more surprising. The fact that 20% of owners of auto dealerships make are in the top 0.1%, making basically $1.6 million per year uh, was pretty uh, striking to me. I hadn't known that, uh, middlemen, that's kind of beverage distributors and other people in a variety of boring fields, kind of, uh, uh, shipping, uh, working between the producers and the supermarkets or retail chains. They're crushing it in various ways, market research firms. Uh, it's only a few, if you, it's a little hard to know what they all have in common. There's a lot that goes into it, but I think one thing that clearly uh, plays a role is having a local monopoly. Uh, mm-hmm. So 
you know, people yeah, don't I was going to ask this seemed, right because this is you're you're saying there's like uh, 1.6 million dollar bills laying on the street that we should always yeah, exactly. set up an auto dealership. So yes, and and especially because like you know I get that I couldn't you know just set up a market research like I'd have to like meet people I have to figure out what the heck this thing is about like it's complicated but like I feel like I could maybe you know I I could learn how to do an auto dealership. I mean Ralph Macchio did it from uh, in uh, after after the Karate Kid his. Uh, <laughs> character went on to become an auto dealer, right? So can't be that yeah, hard. So, uh, so auto dealers have, so this is kind of straight economics. So one of the first kind of economics 101 is the zero profit condition, which is, you know, yeah, if someone's making a profit, business is making profit, someone else is going to come in, start a competing business, charge lower prices and eat away your profit. Uh, and one of the things that these, some of these fields have is some legal protection against that. Uh, so auto dealers, there are laws in the United States that protect, uh, allow basically auto dealers to service a particular car company in a particular region. Uh, and the car company can't sell their cars themselves. And another auto dealer, potential auto dealer would have great trouble opening up a competing business. Beverage distributors have some protections as well. They were set up after prohibition. Uh, and I think one of the things you take from this chart is just how hard it is to find a business that's consistently making people rich exactly for the reason that you're discussing, that it is a $1.6 million uh, dollar bill uh, high, uh, sitting on the, uh, on the street. So I think it, even people who understand that owning capital business is the path to getting rich, probably many of them underestimate the threat of price competition and have to think much more deeply about how they're going to avoid it somehow. Uh, that if you just, you know, like anybody who's starting a business, I think uh, should have to describe, should should have to explain uh, why auto repair shops, uh, less fewer than 1% of owners of auto repair shops are in the 0.1% and more than 20% of owners of auto dealerships are in the top 0.1%. Uh, so, you know, auto repair shop, terrible business, auto dealership, awesome business. And it's not something inherent in the difficulty of the business. It's, it's not, you know, you don't need way more talent to run an auto dealership than run a, a auto repair shop. And it's not offering a more valuable service. If anything, I would say the auto repair shop is offering the more valuable service by actually fixing a problem you have. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, they're just ma massively, one gives massively higher chances of getting rich because of uh, legal protections. Uh, but, you know, e even if you're not going to get a legal protection, you just can't underestimate the importance of these questions in business, which is what's going to uh, protect you from price competition. And so do the data, did this show that like people who get into this business become rich or is it just, or is it more like a steady state of like, these are the rich people? Cause like, yeah, so it's, it's a steady state. So that, that is a complication. There is some survivorship bias, but presumably the survivorship bias is going to affect all uh, business, all businesses, uh, at least to some level. And uh, you, uh, if anything, I think probably auto dealerships even rank better at that point, because so few people are starting auto dealerships these days, because it's so hard because the legal protections. Uh, so uh, yeah, I think, you know, it, it's, it's not a perfect uh, measure of what business should you start. Uh, but I do think it does really teach us a lot about how the economy works. Uh, that are useful, would be useful for anybody trying to start a business. So, 
I was going to ask you the social question, but yeah, sort of thinking about like, how does this, does this change how we should think about, uh, about our collective resentment of the 1% and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and inequality in America? Cause I guess, you know, I probably would, uh, yeah, I don't know. Can I, should I feel bad for the high school jock or should I feel, should I, should I be upset that the high school jock, uh, was able to, you know, take on his dad's auto business, um, you know, perhaps despite not having the same, uh, work ethic or talent or something, but like, uh, we don't, we don't usually imagine when we're cultivating our class warfare ideas that this is the person we're, we're fighting against. Yeah. And to be fair, this is the 140,000 or so people are making more than $1.6 million or so a year. Uh, now that if you did the average of these people's money, it would still be dominated by Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, so they still do own a big uh, piece of the, you know, a, a outsized piece of the pie. Uh, but, uh, you know, but uh, yeah, I think, you know, so I think this one, so from societal perspective, maybe the targets uh, still are the ones we've thought, long thought about these billionaires who really can uh, influence society. Although auto dealerships, they, they are influencing society in various ways. There is a, uh, apparently, a big percent of Congress people have been connected to the auto dealership business. Uh, so it is not trivial, uh, the amount of money that is going into auto dealerships, uh, yeah, collectively. Well, it sounds like, yeah, it sounds like kind of a, like like you said, like a, uh, not a natural monopoly, kind of an unnatural monopoly. And so I would imagine they, uh, they... I don't know if anyone's agitated against it, but I'm sure they're they're doing their best to protect uh, protect themselves against what they would view as unfair competition or exploitation by the, you know, it's easier. I imagine it's much easier to get support from Congress for like uh, a poor auto dealership in your uh, in your local area and say, yeah, this, you know, we should, you know, don't let Chevron, don't let Chevrolet or whoever's left, you know, uh, exploit me. You need to to protect the little guy against the big corporation, even if it turns out the little guy is probably richer than most people affiliated with the big corporation. For sure. Yeah, the, the little guy may be richer than uh, many of the executives in these big corporations. I mean, that, that's the other thing that's striking in the data is the percent of people in the top 0.1% who are owning businesses. I think they said that the, kind of you put together owners of, uh, you know, yeah, like owners of even sm- relatively small companies, S corporations, partnerships, if you put all their wealth together, it dwarfs uh, executive compu- uh, compensation of the top 2000 or so firms, uh, which I think, you know, so I think, uh, yeah, there, there, pro- there probably is a degree that the, the little guy, the traditional little guy, small business owner isn't always the little guy. Of course, sometimes it, uh, you know, they really are. Uh, again, there there are so many businesses that are just really, really bad businesses. So the restaurant owner down the street or the dry cleaner owner down the street, uh, they may very well be the the little guy, uh, but uh, the auto dealership owner isn't the little guy. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, so I guess I should tell my kid to stop uh, studying so hard and focus on finding a way to maybe marry into an auto dealership. He's, yeah, so then you got to give the dating advice. The dating advice combined with the wealth advice. Uh, dating advice tells you how to win over the partner. The wealth advice t- tells you which partner to look into to look for.
you have all the secrets. So this is great. So then I guess the next step is once you've won over the partner and uh, got yourself the, the, the job and the money uh, and the, the partner, then, uh, so then you have kids. So, uh, so what do we do to make sure that our kids are also, also rich? Yeah. So it's interesting, the data on parenting, there are these great books that I found incredibly convincing one by Judith Rich Harris and one by Brian Kaplan that basically look at a whole bunch of data, twin studies, adoption studies, and they claim that the overall effects of parents is kind of surprisingly small. Uh, and that a lot of, so much of it is nature, not nurture. And that, you know, even kids grow up with very different parents, maybe they're adopted. If they share the same genetics, they're going to sh- turn out relatively similarly. And if adoptive uh, family, uh, adopts parent adopts kids from different biological parents with very different genetics, they're not going to turn out that similarly. So the parents uh, don't seem to have that huge an impact, which is actually, I wrote half of this, I wrote the whole chapter, a draft of my first chat of the chapter in the parenting section. And that's all I want to tell people, uh, kind of just uh, kind of, you know, spread the message that what? Just don't worry so much. Just not worry so much. Yeah. So uh, Brian Kaplan has a section. He says, "Lighten up." Yeah. And uh, yeah, kind of. You know, if 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 I think you know the best parents, they may increase their kids' income by twenty six percent. Income's obviously not all that we care about in in parent in parenting, and there are things you can have a bigger impact in, which I discussed in the book a little bit. But 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 if uh, but parents face you know tens of thousands of decisions. So if tens of thousands of decisions lead up to a 26% effect, then each individual decision is having a tiny, tiny effect, way less than 1%. And there have been studies, it's it's shockingly hard to find a study showing that any, that massively different styles of parenting have big effects. So do you, you know, allow your kids to watch TV or not? Doesn't seem to matter. Do you breastfeed your kids? Doesn't seem to matter. Uh, are you a tiger mom or tiger dad? Best evidence suggests doesn't really matter. Do you, you know, teach them uh, intensive games, bilingual education? Uh, you know, all these things don't seem to matter that much. And uh, so I was kind of prepared to write that. And then I remembered a former professor of mine, Raj Chetty's research on the effects of neighborhood, where he found big effects of the neighborhood you grow up uh, in with this very clever methodology and tax records. Uh, basically comparing family, looking at families that moved when their kids were young. So, you know, if I move and one of my kids is 10 and another of my kids is one, then uh, one of those kids is going to have nine years in a different city than the other kid. And that takes, you know, that would uh, control for uh, genetics and general parenting. And so, so I was kind of thinking about, so I was almost basically done with this chapter (laughs) Like, you know, chill out, everybody. And then I'm like, wait a second. Well, what about Raj Chetty's and, and, and co-authors work on neighborhoods? And then I kind of thought about it. I'm like, well, that suggests that if you if you do the math on how much parent, parents matter overall and how much a neighborhood matters, keeping into account that a neighborhood is part of parenting, part of what a different, if you're, if, you know, you kids who grow up with very different parents are growing up in different neighborhoods, it seems to suggest Neighborhoods maybe maybe something like twenty five percent of the total effect of parenting, uh, maybe more, uh, maybe a little bit less. So so you know so the average most just about every decision that a parent makes uh, has this tiny effect on uh, 
uh, you know, how a kid turns out, but it seems like neighborhoods maybe has a much bigger effect. So I thought that was really interesting that. Uh, yeah. That, so, so tell me more about the neighborhoods. Cause like, I certainly, you know, uh, uh, I'm a parent. So like the, certainly the parenting discourse is all about like, you've got to move to the right neighborhood because it has the right school. Actually, I remember in grad school, um, one of my, uh, the, the department secretary, um, was telling me about how she was moving from her neighborhood to another neighborhood because it had low test scores. And it turned out it was the neighborhood I grew up in. And uh, <laughs> I was like, man, I feel like, you know, we did okay. It was like two two people from my high school went on to get PhDs at Stanford. So like, it wasn't that bad. But like, she was like, no, the, you know, the down, down, you know, 15 minutes drive south of you, there's uh even better neighborhood where they have even better test scores. And so I've got to take my kids there because that's must do this for for my life. So um, but but that's not what you find. So so what uh, do you so find? So the big correlations of neighborhoods are not the things you might expect. And interestingly, neighborhood the best neighborhoods don't seem to correlate. They correlate positively with rent, but not that positively. So it's not just this. Or you might think there's an, everyone knows what the best neighborhoods are, and there's an arms race to get into these neighborhoods, and you you have to pay through the roof to raise your kids in the right neighborhood. And that seems to not be true in the data. Uh, the biggest correlations are. One of the biggest correlations in the data was percent of adults in the neighborhood who returned their census form, which is very odd uh, metric, especially since it it predicted so much, it, you know, had so much more predictive power than things like uh, test scores or a booming economy, things that you might naturally would think would be, you know, more important than returning test uh, census form. Yeah, it's amazing someone even thought to check that. What? It's amazing someone even thought to check that. Yeah, yeah, that there is data on that, and I think, and then other things are like uh, a percent of uh, adults with bachelor's degree and percent of parents with two family homes. One of the, the reads, my reads of uh, the, the the research is that the adults in a neighborhood really matter, and there's actually a couple more studies also by uh, Raj Chetty and other researchers. Each paper had about five co-authors and. Uh, it was really convincing evidence on the value of role models where they found that little girls who move to neighborhoods with a lot of adult female scientists are more likely to become scientists themselves. And uh, black boys who grow up in neighborhoods with a lot of black fathers around, even if they're not, even if their father's not around, have better outcomes on many dimensions. And I think the other adults we're exposing our kids to may be having more of an impact than we sometimes think. Uh, so we don't really think like uh, necessarily, you know, oh, if the next door neighbor is uh, a scientist and, I, you know, I'm having dinner parties with the next door neighbor and my uh, daughter is kind of seeing this, this uh, you know, woman and impressed by her, she's more likely to become a scientist herself. I think there's maybe a sense in which you pay the things you do and say, it's a little complicated to get it in a kid's ear because kids we know have complicated views on their parents. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes they think you're the coolest person in the world. Sometimes they think you're the least cool person in the world, but the other adults they're seeing that the relationships the kids have to them are much less complicated and they may really be, you know, inspire your, your kids more. So I think there are, you know, one of the ways to use data to be a better parent is to, I think, put more energy into uh, the adults you're exposing your kids to. 
I think is clearly data driven. So if you have friends who you're like, it would be really cool if my kids turned out like them, I definitely recommend uh, exposing your kids more to them, uh, you know, uh, based on the data. Now there is, you could take the data driven parenting way further where uh, the team that did this research actually has a website which tells you the expected value of every neighborhood in the United States. Now, of course, it's based on old data because, uh, you know, the, to, to track people, to see how a neighborhood you grow up in affects you when you're 30 years old, you have to have 30 years of data. Right. Uh, but they, ha- they have found evidence that the success, the quality of a neighborhood is fairly stable over time as far as they've looked at it. So it doesn't seem to drop off a cliff or anything. So there may be some information even in that website that could help you. And if you go to that website and it turns out that you're living in the worst neighborhood for kids success, uh, you know, I'd probably, I'd at least uh, rethink some things. I already bought my house. So I think I've got to, uh, I better avoid that website, but um, (laughs) we'll recommend it to other people. So, so um, I think, uh, have you, have you had a chance to read Nate Hilger's book? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Big fan so, of that book. So I'm trying to I'm trying to sort of uh, connect your conclusions with his. So I feel like you know the big message of his book. I had him on a few weeks ago, and like we we're talking about this, it, it, is that uh, that well, I guess consistent with yours in that like the schools don't matter nearly as much as we think. Um, yeah. You know, we should make them better. But in terms of like you know his focus is is not the self help focus, but on the you know how do we make our society uh, less unequal. Um, and he's saying, you know, the schools are not the main thing. What we need to do is, you know, we need to think about like all those hours of the day that people spend outside of school and, you know, with, and I feel like he places more emphasis on, you know, parents. And then also like, you know, if you have a, you know, good preschool that can teach you certain skills and, um, it makes it sound like there is, well, there, there's a lot, a lot of society that you can do for that. But then also it seems like the implication is that parents could do that although and and part of the reason part of the problem is that you know if you're you know someone's working two jobs for 80 hours a week at minimum wage then you're not gonna have time to do any of this stuff anyway because you're just trying to you know pay for the rent but uh but it sort of seems more like there there could be things i don't know i'm trying to square i'm I'm being incoherent i'm trying to square your your results versus his so he starts by disagreeing with the brian kaplan book that parents uh don't matter that much. He says that there's there are limitations to some of those studies. And I think he offers some convincing evidence. I think even if you take uh, you know, that, that parents maybe matter more than uh, Kaplan said they, they did, or that based on research of Bruce Sacerdote and some others, even if you say that the effects of parents are a little more because there's some range limitations to that study because adoptive parents are already you know, pretty good. I still think the main point that the average parenting decision people face is not that important. And it's been very hard to consistently find a parenting strategy that's, that's that has a huge impact. I still think that stands. And I still think that the neighborhood being a big part of the impact and that a lot of the impact is going to happen through peers and other people in the neighborhood, not necessarily through parents themselves. Uh, I think that's uh, pretty clear in the data. So I don't think you know, that doesn't, uh, I think, you know, I'm a, I actually blurbed uh, Nate's book and I'm a big fan of it. And I think he makes some brilliant points. 
uh, I don't think really what I'm saying necessarily is is inconsistent, uh, particularly since some of the poor kids, uh, poor kids in the United States grow up in very lousy neighborhoods without many people who return their census forms or got a college degree or remain uh, married. Uh, so it's probably harder to get that type of neighborhood assistance, uh, you know, in, for, for many poor kids in the United States as well. Right. I suppose you could think of, you know, to an extent, some of what he's, he's advocating for would actually be improvements to their neighborhood um, so yeah. that less less of the weight falls on the parents. So I guess in that sense, you guys would be on the same same page. Um, all right. So uh, we're, we're running short on time, but I did, uh, before we end, I wanted to get the, uh, the secret of happiness from you. <laughs> yeah. So happiness is the, the happiness research really goes to your point of all these cool things have economists can do. Because I read, I, I, I knew once you have a self-help book where you're going to talk about kind of every top major topic, uh, you're going to have a chapter or two on happiness. So I knew I had to say something on happiness. And I know I really didn't know the happiness literature very well. So I didn't know what I was going to say. And I started reading a whole bunch of happiness papers. And a lot of them I found fairly underwhelming. I think uh, we as economists have a standard for evidence that I think psychologists you know, ha- haven't necessarily reached. And a lot of the studies are these very small studies of you know, a few of their undergrad students and these small experiments that I found very difficult to interpret. Uh, even uh, you know, supposedly evidence-based happiness research, I think has been... Uh, 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 based on flimsy uh, evidence. So I was fairly uh, discouraged until I came across this uh, project Mappiness, which I didn't realize at the time, but I later realized was from two economists, which is why probably why I liked it so much. Uh, and they did this amazing project where they uh, pinged people on their phone and they asked them uh, three questions. What are you doing? Who are you with? And rate your happiness from zero to 100. And they built a data set of more than 60,000 people and 3 million, more than 3 million happiness points. And because the data set was so large and it had so many people, they could do really convincing evidence of the type that I think you or I would find, you know, the methods that we're used to, sometimes a natural experiment. What happens to someone's mood when they're exact, precisely when their sports team wins or loses a game, or they could, could control for everything under the sun. Mm-hmm. So they could, you know, th- th- they're, they're, uh, they did some studies. They uh, uh, McCarran and Murado, the founders, George McCarran and Susanna Murado founded the study, uh, found, I think, con- com- uh, extremely compelling evidence, such ex- so, so compelling that I have made big changes in my life based on it, on the value of being near nature, particularly near a body of water. And the evidence was controlling for so many things that essentially they were comparing the same person doing the same activity at the same time of day in the same weather, but sometimes they're in a natural environment, sometimes they're in an artificial environment, and they get a big boost in a natural environment, uh, again, particularly near a body of water, and uh, just extremely compelling studies uh, that I think were you know, fairly revolutionary in our understanding of happiness, uh, with the important caveat that just about everything they found was incredibly obvious. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, but as you said, there's so many things we think are obvious 
uh, you know, and I had this discussion with non-academic friends it's like, why are you studying that? Of course, it's obvious, you know, we already know this. And then, and then of course, if you can, then if you confirm it, they say, oh, it's obvious. But then you've, we've already gone through all these things like that everyone takes as obvious, takes for granted. And actually the evidence does not support that they matter at all. So, so I'll just, you know, give credit exactly. for that. Exactly. That's, that's kind of, that was one of the things that I really want to do in this book. And I, I hope people appreciate that is there's so much pressure to say something counterintuitive, shocking, surprising, uh, when you're a pop science writer, uh, or professor. You know, yeah. Yeah. Professor as well. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, and I think it, it gets in the way of our understanding of the truth. I have a whole chapter where I kind of make that point on the, what predicts a successful entrepreneur where you've been just misled by all people just telling these surprising stories or surprising studies that have just ruined people's understanding of what makes a successful entrepreneur. And I think it's really important to just go where the data takes you. And sometimes it takes you to a surprising place for me, the beverage distributors and auto dealers and market research owners, you know, that, that I didn't know. And, you know, the, the lack of effect of parents or the fact that census, uh, returning census forms is a bigger correlate of a good neighborhood than you know, booming economy. Th those all I would have never guessed and kind of did surprise me or even shock me. And then sometimes the data is just like, oh yeah, that, that, that makes perfect sense. And, and as you said, if the data, if the data always was the opposite of what we thought, we wouldn't need it because we knew we were always wrong and could just do the reverse. And if the data always said what we thought was correct, we wouldn't need the data because uh, we could just always do what, what we thought, what was obvious, what was intuitive. But the fact is the data sometimes says what you think is right, sometimes says what you think is wrong. And I think with happiness, the obviousness of the research, I, I conclude the book with uh, what's, what makes people happy, what I call the data-driven answer to life. And I say the data-driven answer to life is to be with your love on an 80 degree and sunny day, overlooking a beautiful body of water, having sex. Uh, because that really synthesizes all the findings from mappiness and similar projects where sex is the happiest activity being with your romantic partner. Uh, gives so, wait, so people were getting pings while they were having sex and they'd stop oh, no, and they'd answer I, the survey. I, I said that as a joke during okay. my, uh, <laughs> during my, uh, 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 in writing it up, you, you're, you have 60 minute, they, they say you get the ping while, while you're having sex, but you have 60 minutes to respond what you were doing and how you felt. So it's not okay. like people are literally stopping having sex. Uh, to just check to, it there. I mean, I know we as you know researchers will do anything, but we yeah. have to keep the subject. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's a little less. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's not quite as humorous as people stopping their sex to uh, answer the mappiness survey. But uh, you know, so romantic part is the happiness. Uh, Eighty degrees and sunny is the happiest weather. Being in nature, being by water, is the happiest place. So that's kind of where all happiness research converges on. Uh, so I, I would agree that most of the findings from happiness research are fairly obvious, but I would argue there's profundity in the obviousness of the happiness research because so few of us do the things that make people happy. And then we complain that we're not happy. So mm -hmm. uh, many of us live in big cities, spend little time in nature. Uh, many of us spend time, you know, whittle away hours on social media, which there's increasing evidence is horrible for our mood. Uh, you know, many of us don't spend enough time with our romantic partners or our friends because we're so busy working, which is a questionable path to happiness. So I think, you know, if, if the research on happiness is fairly obvious, and I think it is, 
uh, it's still good for people to know because it's not how most of us live and choose to live our lives. Right. Yeah. It seems obvious, but there's other things that, yeah, exactly. People think like, you know, working hard, seeing that their career or whatever it is, you know, might, will make them happy. And so knowing that as with all the parenting tricks, that there's a lot of like not super strong evidence that that's really gonna, gonna nail it for you is, uh, um, is good to, good to be reminded of. So I think I will, uh, go to the park this afternoon and, uh, get some <laughs> fresh air. Um, I will not have sex in the park. Um, uh, don't, so other people in the neighborhood, don't worry. Won't be, <laughs> won't be trying to combine the recipe there. Um, but, uh, well, yeah. So I think, why don't we, uh, stop on that note? So actually, so tell us once again, so that this let's, uh, let's end on that. Tell us the secret to happiness one more time. So we don't forget it. Uh, the day to German answer life, uh, be with your love on an 80 degree and sunny day, overlooking a beautiful body of water, having sex.